I'm ABC's Aaron Katursky, and this is Bringing America Back, What You Need to Know. The United States has reached another unwanted coronavirus milestone, 2 million diagnosed cases. In eight states, the number of people going into the hospital with COVID-19 is increasing, even as everywhere reopens. When you open, that doesn't mean that everything is okay and you just can just do whatever you want. Dr. Anthony Fauci told ABC News the public still needs to practice a degree of caution. That means you still should be wearing a mask. You still should be trying as best as possible to have that physical distancing. You still need to wash your hands as often as you possibly can and avoid congregation in large numbers. Protests certainly qualify as congregation in large numbers. When you get congregations, like we saw with the demonstrations, as we have said, myself and other health officials, that's taking a risk. And unfortunately, what we're seeing now is just an example of the kinds of things we were concerned about. More than a dozen of the newest coronavirus cases include members of the D.C. National Guard who tested positive after they were called to stand watch over demonstrations. The report of the National Guardsmen being infected is certainly disturbing, but is not surprising. Fauci said there are quite promising candidates for a vaccine. Advanced clinical trials are set to begin this summer for at least one and maybe three of them. And if all goes well, researchers should know by the fall whether those candidate vaccines are safe and effective. We could have a vaccine either by the end of this calendar year or in the first few months of 2021. Cautious optimism from the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, Dr. Anthony Fauci. The vaccine is the panacea, but even without it, Movie theaters are eyeing a July reopening across the country as Hollywood restarts churning out new films. All I have for you is a word. Tenet. Tenet from director Christopher Nolan is a big new release. If you see it, you may be sitting checkerboard style in the theater. David A. Gross, who runs Franchise Entertainment Research, joins us now from Los Angeles. So there will be movies to show if all these theaters reopen next month? Well, you're asking at the, at the, at the very right moment. There are people that are huddled in boardrooms at Warner Brothers and at AMC and Cinemark and all the big theater chains. And the decision is coming any minute, any day. The big date right now, July 17, for a movie called Tenet from Warner Brothers. It's a big movie. It, 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 the budget was $205 million, and Warner Brothers will probably spend another $100 million to market it around the world. Everybody at this very moment is trying to decide, are we ready for July 17? The, the issue really is, is it a safe environment for the moviegoers? And what's the answer to that? You know, we're not going to be normal until we have a vaccine like any other business where there are people in a room, sports, uh, restaurants. This is going to be an uneven six to 12 months until we get there. They're talking about all kinds of measures to make sure it's safe, staggered seating, limitation on capacities so that there's distancing, virtual tickets so there's no paper ticket that's handled by anybody. Concessions will look different. Uh, things will be prepackaged. There's all kinds of things that they'll do to keep it safe. Is there any doubt, though, that the demand is there, that the public wants to go back to the movies? I have no doubt. You know, every 
thing, every every step that's been lifted during this pandemic, there's always been a rush back. You know, when parks and beaches have opened, people rush back. When restaurants and bars have opened, people rush back. It's going to be uneven. But there's just no doubt about it. Movie, movie, Seeing a movie on a big screen with strangers in a dark room is the premium experience. So I have no doubt the movie business is going to be going to return and get on its feet. Did any of the studios give serious consideration to releasing movies straight to television or to pay services for, for Hulu or Disney Plus? Yes, there's a, there's been a lot of talk about that, but you're not going to see Tenant from Christopher Nolan on the small screen direct. You're not going to see it. It's not made for that. And economically, when a movie belongs on the big screen, the big sequels, the big Disney and Pixar animation, when a movie belongs on the big screen, that's where it's going to make the most amount of money. It's It's economic in the end. There were movies well into production whose release was delayed. There are others where production may have been delayed. How are the studios going to handle the rollout of of some of the, the most anticipated movies that just haven't made it to the screen yet? You know, many dates were pushed back. You know, many dates. Fast and Furious is a is a good example. You know, a huge franchise series pushing back. And some of the movies were in mid-production and had to shut down because, you know, the production two, the actual production process had to be frozen. It was not considered safe. So it's kind of, you know, everything was put to sleep. And um, again, I, I am optimistic. It'll all come back. It's just going to be a, an uneven time until we get there. David A. Gross at Franchise Entertainment Research. Another sport is coming back. Major League Soccer Commissioner Don Garber said his league is going to return July 8th at Disney in Orlando. Finally, for 2020, MLS is back. Uh, We uh, postponed play and then worked for the last couple of months uh, to put together a plan, uh, one that would assure the health and safety of our players and one that would deliver uh, exciting content on the field uh, for our fans, for our partners, and, uh, and ultimately uh, get our sport and get our league back doing what we do best, which is to play soccer. Uh, we will begin on July 8th, as you all have already heard, with a tournament that's going to feature all of our teams at one site. That's the ESPN Wide World of Sports Complex at Disney World in Florida. And as you know from our last conversations, uh, this is a project that uh, literally took Uh, nearly three months uh, to pull together and the culmination of efforts from everyone throughout the league office, through our clubs, our great partners at Disney and ESPN, uh, and in conjunction with uh, a number of infectious disease consultants and our own uh, chief medical officers, both at the league uh, and at our respective clubs. You know, we selected Orlando because we wanted a neutral site where we could bring all 26 of our teams together to do it in a format that we thought would be compelling. All of our clubs have been returning to individual team training. Only a handful of them have been able to conduct full team training. Uh, the fact that we don't know have or that we don't have any real certainty uh, as to when we can get our teams into full team training. Some of them will arrive at the Disney complex early. 
uh, as early as June 24th and begin training and getting prepared uh, for the first games on on July 8th. Don Garber, MLS commissioner on the return of soccer July 8th at Disney in Orlando. Disney is the parent company of ABC News. Parts of New York entered a new phase of reopening today. And for Long Island, that meant salons and barbers. I have a 10 o'clock. Salon 2000 in West Hampton Beach spaced the barber chairs, kept most of those waiting outside, and made sure everybody wore masks, except when Michelle, the owner, needed to trim around the ears. We prepared, and you know, we missed our clients. It's like our second family. You know, three months of not being in business and earning a revenue was really awful, right, but right. we have to protect no. our second family. So we did the best that we could. You know, so we have all the sanitization and everything in place, and uh, people are calling left and right. So it's we're going to be we're back and better than ever. <laughs> I mean, I'm so psyched to see you. Were you happy to come back to work? Oh, thrilled! Yeah, absolutely. You need, people need to have a purpose. You know, I can't I can't just make grilled cheese all day for kids. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I was happy to get my bag over my shoulder, put some makeup on come back and help people look and feel great. I think there was a new appreciation for uh, hairdressers and <laughs> salons and barbershops. <laughs> people found out it's really not that easy to cut hair. Not that easy to color hair. People taking the scissor and the coloring brush into their own hands, never a good idea. How bad and shaggy do every, does everybody look? Oh, it's bad. <laughs> it's bad. <laughs> it's almost comical. It's just like, Wow. I don't know if I like you saying comical while cutting my hair. (laughs) Our thanks to Michelle at Salon 2000 in West Hampton Beach, New York, for the chat and the trim. I'm Aaron Katursky. Now over to Amy Robach. Thank you, Aaron. Joining me now is ABC News chief medical correspondent, Dr. Jen Ashton. And Dr. Jen, we heard the World Health Organization dial back Mm -hmm. that statement that asymptomatic transmission of COVID-19 was rare. Now, this inconsistency in information has certainly led to a lot of confusion Mm -hmm. for people out there. So it's been an ongoing source of debate as to how this virus is transmitted. What do we know right now? Transmission dynamics. And yes, this is one of the many areas that's been confusing. It's filled with uncertainty. There is still a question, Amy, whether this virus is quote unquote airborne. So let's break down some of this uh, aerosol uh, physics and biology, if you will. First of all, here are the possibilities contact exposure, respiratory droplet exposure, or so-called airborne exposure. Now, this paradigm in infectious diseases and environmental science is about 70-plus years old, probably needs some revision. When you talk about basic definitions, contact exposure, that's when you touch a surface or shake someone's hand that may contain viral particles, and then you touch your eyes, nose, and mouth, those mucous membranes. Respiratory droplets, which are the leading suspicion right now for COVID-19, are basically just larger viral particles that come out of our mouth when we cough, sneeze, or even speak. Airborne spread pertains to the spread of droplets or particles that can stay infectious over a longer period of time and over a longer distance. That's really the key, time and distance. All right. And so in speaking to infectious disease experts, which I know you do often and and, uh, daily, what are the theories right now about transmission of this virus? So many theories. And some of the seminal work in this area is done by a professor named Dr. Lisa Brousseau. She's out of SIDRAP. She's an environmental scientist. This is all she looks at. And one of the phrases that I think people will be hearing more and more is this 
close-range aerosol transmission. That is what is considered a strong possibility for spread of SARS-CoV-2. The CDC, however, a little bit in controversy to that, has said repeatedly that the primary route of transmission is by inhaling these respiratory droplets. There are some environmental scientists who don't really believe that so much, so that is a theory that, that is being investigated. And just imagine when you talk about aerosol spread or airborne spread, you know the dust particles that you can sometimes see through sunlight or if you spray yep. a can of hairspray in the air. That's really what you should think about when you talk about aerosol particles. All right, so what is still left to discover The basics. We really don't know yet how far the particles that contain SARS-CoV-2 can travel. We don't know how long they can survive in the air. We've heard up to three hours, but we don't know if it's even longer than that. And in terms of airborne spread, in order to meet that criteria, they need to remain in the air a very far distance from that source. Um, And we still don't know if that's possible. And we don't know the full major route of transmission of this virus. That research is ongoing. All right, Dr. Jen, thank you so much. Well, as protests for justice continue, some are questioning the methods that law enforcement are using to contain the crowds. Over the weekend, protesters in San Jose, California, voiced growing concerns over police using tear gas and rubber bullets as means of unnecessary excessive force. Here to weigh in is the mayor of San Jose, Sam Licardo. Mayor Licardo, thanks for being with us. And how do you respond to those residents, your local residents, accusing police of escalating the violence? during the protests? You know, certainly we've been proud here in San Jose to have a very progressive police department that has been on the forefront of reform. Uh, But through the recent protests, I have to admit, I've seen some video clips that have raised concerns for me. And I know several people who have been actually hit by rubber bullets. Uh, And uh, what has become apparent is we've started hearings yesterday to really try to understand how we're using forces that uh, we need to look differently uh, about how we're using force, particularly when there are innocent, uh, peaceful protesters in a crowd, uh, I announced that I'm going to be pushing for a ban of rubber bullets uh, in the context of crowded uh, kinds of uh, protests and, and those environments because we know too many innocent people are getting hit and some of those injuries are quite serious. As you know, a growing number of cities in this country now pushing to defund their local police departments or at least divert funds to social programs. You say doing so will disproportionately hurt marginalized communities. Can you explain what you mean by that? Well, we know how it works in a lot of cities, because when we had a lot of budget cuts through the last recession, we saw white wealthy communities that were hiring private security patrols while communities of color that are disproportionately afflicted with serious and violent crime and victimized by it are left really to their own devices. Uh, That's not the America we want. Uh, We need to reform uh, those institutions, including our police departments, uh, where we know uh, there are clearly issues of structural racism, and that's true, frankly, in every institution in our society. Uh, Simply cutting is not going to get us there. And frankly, uh, in many ways, we need to invest dollars in things like data and transparency and accountability. uh, And that doesn't happen through cuts. Now, Mayor, in addition to everything else going on, the Bay Area recently reopened amid this pandemic. What measures are now being introduced in your city, San Jose, to counteract the spread of COVID? Well, we were the first city in the country uh, to suffer a fatality uh, through this pandemic and the first 
in which there was a, a shutdown order. But we've been a little slower coming out than most communities. And we just celebrated last week, finally beginning to open up restaurants and retail to people. And what we're trying to do with this Alfresco initiative is pushing commerce out in the street. We're closing lanes of traffic, uh, moving uh, restaurants and and retail and maybe some yoga studios out in the sidewalks and parking lots to really take advantage of our 300 days of sunny year. And we hope that will both add vibrancy to our city and give many of our small businesses an opportunity to be able to safely engage with more customers and hopefully sustain them. San Jose Mayor Sam Licardo, thank you so much for your time today. We certainly appreciate it. Great to be with you, Amy. Employees everywhere have been affected by COVID-19, and that rings especially true for our country's domestic workers, the majority of which are women, mostly immigrant women and women of color. Joining us now to talk more about these impacts is the co-founder and executive director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance, Ai-jen Poo. Ai-jen, thank you so much for being with us today. And historically, domestic workers have been undervalued. They have been underpaid here in the United States. Can you talk about why that is? Well, domestic workers are the nannies who take care of our children, the home care workers who take care of our elderly and our loved ones with disabilities, and the cleaners who maintain safety and order in our homes. And this work has always been associated with women. And as a profession, it's always been associated with black women and immigrant women of color. And there's been a long history of racial exclusion that this workforce, this workforce has been subjected to dating all the way back to the New Deal when our nation's labor laws were put into place. It's part of a legacy of slavery where when our nation's labor laws were being discussed in the 1930s, Southern members of Congress refused to support basic labor laws if they included protections for farm workers and domestic workers, including home care workers, who were mostly black workers at the time. And so that history of racial exclusion has shaped the conditions to this day, whereby most domestic workers earn poverty wages, don't have any access to a safety net or paid leave, paid time off, um, or health care. And that has meant a really devastating context to enter into this pandemic with. So, Ajen, how is your organization helping? Well, we've been in emergency response mode from the beginning of the COVID crisis, and we've established an emergency assistance fund called the Coronavirus Care Fund to provide emergency cash assistance for domestic workers in need right now who've been affected. We've also created a COVID-ready caregiver training program to support the workers who are continuing to go to work through this crisis, understand how to do so as safely as possible. And what we're hearing is that domestic workers are starting to go back to work um, in numbers. And so we've released a set of guidelines to help workers and their employers understand how we can all go back to work as safely as possible. Ai-jen Poo, thank you so much for all that you're doing for so many. And thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you for having me. Bringing America back. What you need to know continues after this. Welcome back to What You Need to Know. We have Dr. Jen Ashton here. And one of the many headlines today, still talking about the World Health Organization dialing back, and you said they way dialed back, Mm -hmm. what they had claimed that asymptomatic spread is rare. Now they're saying, well, maybe not so much. (laughs) So what are we supposed to take away from that? 
Well, first of all, let's give everyone the benefit of the doubt here. There is still a lot of uncertainty. This is an evolving and dynamic virus and field of medicine and science. We're only six months in. So I'm actually surprised these kind of things don't happen more often. But to refresh people's memory, when the World Health Organization just two days ago said asymptomatic spread of this virus is rare, there were a lot of raised eyebrows. We just don't know that. And I think what confused people, at least here in the United States, and we heard Dr. Anthony Fauci uh, today on Good Morning America talk about this, is that people got confused between is there asymptomatic spread of this virus versus how many people can be infected and be asymptomatic. Dr. Fauci himself said 25 to 45 percent, maybe even higher, of people infected with COVID-19 can show no symptoms. We don't yet know how many of those people can spread the virus. Right. And I can only imagine that by saying it's rare, it might give people a license to say, I don't need to wear a mask because I don't have symptoms. Correct. And that's why, Amy, you and I talk about this all the time. The communication of medical and scientific information is critically important all the time, but especially now because it can absolutely impact social behaviors. Right. And wearing masks protects your fellow neighbor, whether or not you have symptoms or not. Correct. As we know right now, we're operating on the best available evidence as we know it today. What is the difference between reactive antibodies and neutralizing antibodies? Okay, so some mini med school here in the field of immunology. Reactive antibodies you can think of are proteins or these immune system fighters, soldiers, if you will, that our body makes after we've been exposed to or infected by a virus. Whether they neutralize or block is a totally different story. Uh, And, you know, I can't help but think of a football or sports move when you hear about blocking, but that's literally what we're talking about. Do they recognize this infectious agent in the future, and do they protect us, give us immune protection? Those are kind of two different shades of gray here, and we still don't know how long this protection may last when it comes to this strain of coronavirus. All right. Next question I'm interested in because I have not stopped sneezing. Allergy season is here. What's the best way to tell the difference between allergy symptoms and coronavirus symptoms? And I, too, am a fellow allergy sufferer. The first thing I would say is you know your body, you know your symptoms, you know how you react basically every year. The other thing is there are some common symptoms and signs that are shared between seasonal allergies or hay fever and coronavirus. But the big difference is you don't get a fever with allergies. You don't typically get body aches with allergies, nor do you get some of the other more rare symptoms that we've been hearing about with COVID-19, like GI symptoms, skin changes, or those neurologic symptoms like loss of smell and taste. So again, you know yourself, but if you have any of those other symptoms, especially if you've been in a hot spot and exposed, you may want to think COVID. Yeah, that's very important to remember. All right. What precautions should be taken when newborns come into contact with visitors at home? I literally just got a personal email about this question myself. There's no official guidance on this, so you have to use common sense and proceed with caution. It would be ideal if there was a rapid test that someone could get five minutes before seeing a newborn and get retested every time you see that newborn. That doesn't exist yet. So I would say there are a couple of options. If you're, let's say, a new grandparent, you can rigorously self-quarantine for 14 days before going to meet your grandbaby, and Mm -hmm. you're reasonably sure that you haven't been exposed. If you can't do that, 
vigorous hand hygiene, washing your hands, possibly even wearing gloves if you handle the baby, and wearing a mask when you're around that newborn, minimizing uh, close-range contact, unfortunately, for now. Right. Not ideal, but at least you can see the yeah, baby. Yeah, exactly. Next question. Do we know if there is any permanent or chronic damage from catching the coronavirus? We don't know yet. Remember the timeline. This virus is in its infancy. It's only about six months old. We need one year, two year, five and 10 year data on this to look for signs of cardiac symptoms or manifestations, pulmonary, neurologic. I mean, you name it literally head to toe, potentially even psychologic or psychiatric or renal kidney. We just don't know yet. It's too it's too early. All right, Dr. Jen, we always appreciate it. And you can submit questions to Dr. Jen on her Instagram at Dr. J Ashton. Well, as families and workers and students all began engaging in new conversations about race, so many of us are looking for guidance. The Smithsonian Museum of African-American History and Culture has just launched a new free web portal that may be of great help to many. It's called Talking About Race. And here to tell us all about it is Dr. Spencer Crew, Interim Director of the Museum. Dr. Crew, thank you for being with us. And I know you've said the number one question people are asking is how to talk to children about race relations. How will this new portal help guide through some of those conversations? Well, what the portal will do is to give uh, help to parents or to educators in terms of videos or activities or guidelines to help them say the right words and to give the right kind of information to children. What we do know is that parents and educators sort of know their children best. And what we're trying to do is to give them the guidelines and information they need to address that child in the proper kind of way. So the portal is really based upon uh, years of research by our education staff and interacting with children and with uh, educators as a way of uh, putting together guidelines and helpful hints to talk to children about these issues. Yeah, and Dr. Crew, it's, it's all interactive. Explain how it works. Well, the, the way the portal works is that you can, uh, first of all, pull it up, and then you will find that it has an introduction about what it's trying to accomplish. But then there are different pathways that people can follow in terms of how they best can use it in their own situation. So we have a pathway for educators. We have a pathway for teachers. We have a pathway for those who just want to learn about how to talk about race. So what we're trying to do is to make it um, multifunctional and useful in a variety kind of ways. What's your ultimate hope uh, that visitors who spend time on this site will walk away with? We hope that the, the site will allow visitors to really begin to talk about race and to talk about what it means in our society, but also to talk about the biases that we all have and how they affect how we interact with others and to make us conscious of that so that as we begin to navigate the society that we uh, don't allow those biases to affect how we react to new people, to new situations, and to begin to embrace the fact that the differences that exist among us are really pluses for us as a society. Dr. Spencer Crew, thank you so much for being with us, and thank you for all that you do. We certainly appreciate it. Thank you very much. As this pandemic continues, we are constantly reminded of the social isolation and loneliness hospital patients are facing. With no visitor restrictions still in place, many are battling this virus alone without access to friends and family. But thanks to two incredible brothers, smartphones are being donated across the country for COVID-19 patients so they can finally connect with loved ones. Joining us now are these remarkable brothers, 
Sunny and Raj. Thank you both for being with us today. And Raj, tell us about your campaign, Connect for COVID-19. How does it work? Yeah, definitely. Uh, first, Amy, thank you so much for having us on and being able to share our story. Um, so Connect for COVID-19 is a campaign where we are collecting smart devices across the country so that patients in hospitals and health facilities can stay connected with their loved ones. That is amazing. So, Sunny, what inspired you to start this in the first place? Yeah, I, mean, I think this really began in March when college campuses were starting to evacuate. I was a senior at Princeton University at the time. Um, and COVID was really starting to make a dent in our lives. And that's where I started to realize that I was fortunate enough to be able to stay in touch with my friends and family um, with a smart device and also realize that others aren't as fortunate to have that smart device. Um, at the same time, I was really feeling helpless on how I can make an impact in this fight against COVID. And I know many others are looking for ways to help. Uh, and that's when I started having conversations with my older brother, background mm. in digital health, um, on how we can make an impact in the fight against COVID and turn this into an impactful organization. Yeah. And what an impact you are having because and explain for us the logistics of this, because obviously visitors aren't allowed in the hospital. So how do your device drop offs work? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked, Amy, because that truly is one of the most fulfilling experiences for for some of our teammates. Um, We're welcomed at the hospitals by, you know, some of the most, um, you know, impactful people at the facility, such as the doctors and nurses, the patient experience teams, um, the CEOs. And we really get to hear firsthand of the impact that these devices can make from them, and then also hear how we can support further going on. That's awesome. And I, I hear that some very big names are offering their support, spreading the word with your campaign. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's been great to see people from really all walks of life to come together to support. I mean, just last week, we had the First Lady um, of New Jersey, Tammy Murphy, come and join for one of the deliveries, given that she's a prominent voice in maternal health, also the founder of the New Jersey Pandemic Relief Fund, really resonated with this message. Um, And outside of that, we've been doing fundraising campaigns. Um, And one in particular was very successful where we um, worked with the Princeton athlete family on how we can, um, you know, fundraise money to connect other families where we had, you know, prominent alums such as Jason Garrett, Craig Robinson, um, Olympian, Super Bowl champions really come together to make a difference and get involved. Right now, we're addressing the immediate need, which is the issue of social isolation of patients are facing across the country. But we're really uh, going forward going to address the aftershocks that come as a result of the COVID pandemic. So things like we're ramping up our telehealth access project so we can give tablets to under-resourced health facilities across the country so they can expand their telehealth capabilities. Um, and, and the beauty of this is that anyone can help. You can go to www.connectforcovid19.com and you can either donate your device donate a few dollars so we can purchase devices, or three, spread the word, spread it to your friends, um, and get your company to donate their spare devices. And you can also follow along our journey on Instagram or Facebook at connectforcovid19.com. Raj and Sunny, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for all that you're doing to help so many people. We wish you the very best in every way. Thank you for having us. Thanks. We turn now to Dr. Jen Ashton for her final thoughts. So inspiring, Amy. My final thoughts today um, really about the importance of curiosity in medicine and science. It's how we operate, but I also think it's a metaphor for life. Um, It's one of the things that I love the most about my position here at ABC is that every single day, 
I get to revisit topics that I had to learn about in medical school, which was a few years ago, <laughs> then do another deep dive, speak to leading experts, and then translate that. So I think my prescription today about curiosity, intellectual curiosity, is keep an open mind, especially as we learn more and more about this virus. Don't assume that you know everything. Um, in medicine and science, that's usually a bad idea, just like in life. Always weigh the risks versus benefits. You and I discuss that all the time. And commit to learning something new, at least one thing every day. I love that. An open mind and an open heart will do us all some good for during sure. these times. All right, Dr. Jen, thank you. And that's our program for today. I'm Amy Robach. Thanks for listening. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.